Section 25 of Loop Garou. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wayne Cook. Loop Garou by Eden Philpotts. Section 25. The Enigma of the Doubloons. Chapter 1. Enoch Wedderborn's Cryptogram A stout, good-tempered-looking man sat wrestling with accounts. Beside him stood a big lime squash with ice and straws in it. From the corner of his mouth protruded a massive cigar. Mr. Hargan was clad in white ducks. He had taken off his collar and tie and turned up his shirt-sleeves to facilitate the mathematical processes which his task demanded. But it was blazing hot, too hot even to cast the highly satisfactory columns of the Bonanza store cash book. He pushed the ledger away, rang a bell by his elbow, drank the squash at a draught, and mopped his round red face. A colored man answered his summons. Massabel? Yes. Why don't the letters come along? The mails must be landed by now. I heard the ship's gun fire more than an hour since. To sell it in the Habasa this long time. Well, get me another squash and crush the ice, man. Don't bring me an iceberg in the stuff like last time. Mr. Hargan fanned himself and, going to the open window, glanced between a palm tree and the white walls of his store to where the blue waters of a noble bay extended. The merchant dwelt at St. Thomas in the western Indies. He was a Dane, owned much land, prospered in his business, and took more hopeful views of life than many of his fellow-countrymen who, like him, lived exiled from the home of their fathers, but who, unlike lucky Alexis Hargan, wooed fortune unsuccessfully. Though the coming letters promised to be particularly interesting, something happened before their arrival which made the old merchant forget all about them for a time. His servant returned, brought with him the liquid refreshment, and made an announcement. "'Young gentleman in the office want to see you, sir. He come from the servant from Bottles, and with him come to Bottles right from England. You tell me always say busy, so I see you very busy, did this morning, but if no care, he see for you for all that. Then he shall send him in.' The negro disappeared, and a moment afterward a sharp tap fell on Mr. Hargan's door. He bid the stranger enter, and a lad appeared. He was quite youthful, perhaps not more than seventeen, but he had a determined air about him, and a bright, straight glance in his eyes that rather attracted the older man. "'Take a seat,' he said. "'Dane or Englishman?' "'English, sir,' answered the lad, sitting down and depositing a leather bag between his feet. "'Traveller? Rather. I have just come from home.' "'What's your line?' asked the merchant. The boy looked puzzled, and then he laughed. "'I'm not that sort of traveller. My line is peculiar, extraordinary, in fact. I've come out on a wonderful business altogether.' "'Any money in it?' "'Something like ten thousand pounds, I hope.' Mr. Hargan laughed. "'I doubt you're getting ten thousand pounds out of St. Thomas.' "'I reckon I shall, in less than a lifetime, too. You're sanguine.' Money doesn't grow on heads this year. It wants a good deal of making. What are you to begin? With you, sir. Go ahead, then. 
Have you the philosopher's stone in your bag? Something like it, I hope. By the way, you have not asked my name yet. I'm called Tom Wedderborn. Does that suggest anything to you? The other thought and fanned himself with an amused expression on his broad face. It does, and yet it does not, he answered. I've certainly heard the name and seen it too somewhere, but I know of no Wedderborns in St. Thomas, excepting your worshipful self. There were Wedderborns in the olden days, though. Right, I, now I remember the name. A man called Wedderborn once owned much land here, but that is a hundred years ago. More than a hundred. He was my great-great-uncle, Mr. Hagen, and the facts are these. The land you now possess here, which has been in your family for generations, once belonged to this ancestor of mine. I have not been able to learn the nature of the bargain, now does it matter in the least. Ah, that is a good thing. You haven't come to take my acres away, then, <laughs> laughed the merchant. Oh, no, answered Tom, quite seriously. Things were carried with a high hand in those old troublous times. Nobody would be fool enough to question a point of possession. But there is no doubt about the fact that the territory here, once my relation's property, is the same territory which now belongs to you. None. I remember the name on the old papers handed me by my father nearly fifty years ago. That's all right. Now, before we come to business, Mr. Hagen, I want you to give me your word, as a man of honor, you'll do the fair thing, sir. I'm youngish, but I've seen bad times and suffered a bit at the hands of my elders. I come to you and say that I believe I have in my head a way of making ten thousand pounds or thereabouts out of St. Thomas. I must, however, secure your aid or I cannot get on. I've come right out from England just to ask that. I'm certain you are not the man to go back on your word, certain of it when I look at you. I may fail in this, this business, or I may strike the right nail on the head. What I want to know is, how much of the ten thousand pounds, supposing it turns up, will you require for helping me? Depends on what sort of help you're looking for, my boy. I don't find the scent of capital, if that's your game. It isn't. I've come to make money, not to borrow it. The help I need is a simple permission to have a look at your land, with a view to some experiments. You may look at the land and welcome. Half of it is wilderness down on the north side of the island somewhere. The more a wilderness, the better for me. It's in a wilderness I hope to make my fortune. Mr. Harkin looked at his visitor suspiciously. It's hot, he said. Better have something cooling. Don't think the climate's turned my head, sir. I never was more ready for business than today. The terms, that is the point. Bless you, I don't want any of your ten thousand pounds. I've got that, and perhaps twice that, but it has taken me a lifetime to pile up. Your fortune, I fancy you say, was to be made pretty quickly? Very quickly, I hope. Three months, if all goes well. Six or seven at the outside. If it isn't made by then, it never will be. Well, my lad, now to your riddle. Crack straight on with it, and I'll try not to laugh. <laughs> but I expect to see your keeper come after you every minute. I do, indeed. <laughs> he chuckled ponderously, flung himself back in his chair, fanned himself, and listened to the eager youth. Tom Wedderborn took a pile of papers from his bag and then told his story. The great-great-uncle of mine I speak of was called Enoch Wedderborn, 
and these memorabilia and data were written out by him before his death. He died in England, leaving no issue, and his fortune, which was very considerable, drifted by will into diverse channels and ultimately vanished, as fortunes do. He made his money in the old slave days, and seems to have thriven upon this island in an atmosphere of yellow jack and rum. He evidently regarded himself as a worthy member of society, but I should think that could only have been by comparison with others. By his own account, he must have been a fearful ruffian. Well, he left St. Thomas when the times grew wild, and perhaps the island too hot to hold him. In fact, toward the last, he appears to have made a bolt of it. On reaching England, he seems to have had some dealings with the Danish government, and finally to have sold his property to your family, when Svenston Hagen, completing the purchases. These matters are all set down here, and these old papers themselves were handed to me by my late father's solicitors upon his death six months ago. I am an orphan, and the last young branch of the family. In fact, I am almost the last of the Wedderborns. I may be absolutely the last, for all I know. These papers had no particular interest for me, but not long ago I rummaged through them with a view to clearing out an old trunk for other uses. By the merest chance, one attracted and interested me. I read it through, then turned to others. All are at your disposal, Mr. Hagen, but two only am I now particularly concerned with. This is the first, written, as you will see, by old Enoch Wedderborn, shortly before his death in London. The lad found a manuscript and read as follows. Being now like to die, and that right soon, I shall here set down a grave matter, much importing those of my blood that survive my going. When it came about that war and rumour of wars fell upon the Isle of St. Thomas, the seat of my home and fortunes, I straightway bethought me of the danger to my goods. For pillage followeth on the heels of carnage, and at such times it ever groweth hard with the godly Christian man who seeketh peace and abideth by the law. I possessed great store of slaves, a blight on the old women who would free them, and of land also a pretty packet of Spanish doubloons, mighty fine and numerous, being in value above thirty shillings apiece. This money, with sundry precious jewels, I put where no one should chance upon them, and then happening by devilish and malicious slights to be myself accused of considerable offences, the clamour of events moved me to speed from the midst of such unchristian usages. To England I came, no beggar, but poorer than I should be by five thousand gold doubloons, and choice jewels not a few. And here I shall abide till I die, but the doubloons are there. It is not meet I should set out the enigma of the hiding-place in plain language, yet Werbones were wont to have brains of stout stuff, and let him, therefore, who hath the wit to do so, untwine the cryptical conceit that shall repose with this and other scripts and scrolls at my banker's house in Lombard Street, and let him who hath the pluck fathom the secret when he shall have read the riddle. This is the original enigma, said young Wedderborn, handing to Mr. Hargan an old and much-stained fragment of paper. I found it after a long search. The bewildering document ran as follows. 
It was composed of eleven lines of continuous, random, and nonsensical letters, with a few capital letters, two dashes, and seven asterisks also at seemingly random locations, and the number 86 in the middle. Mr. Hargan glanced over this lubrication and sniffed. The doubloons are pretty safe, I should judge, young sir, he said. Wouldn't it have been wiser to wait on the other side till you had solved this rigmarole or proved there was no solution? I didn't start on a wild goose chase, believe me, answered Tom Wedderborn. I got to the bottom of this thing first, be sure. Mr. Harkin's respect for the lad increased slightly. Was there a bottom to it? he asked. Oh, dear, yes, and a very shallow one, too. It's simply a riddle, really, though I dare say it amused the old chap to make it. Strangely enough, though, I solved the thing by a succession of flukes. A sharper man would, perhaps, have taken longer than I did. I should be sorry to have to clear the puzzle. Well, I had a bit of knowledge, you see, and that proved enormously valuable in straightening the thing. I knew the name of the man who wrote it. I also observed that this document, together with that I have read to you, evidently written about the same time, was unsigned. It struck me, therefore, that the old chap had probably ended his riddle with his own name. I thought the fifteen letters between the last three asterisks might be two complete words, and if they were, they contained just the number of letters which my great-great-uncle's two names contained. Thus, by the happiest chance, I started on the right road. See here. He took a piece of paper and wrote thus upon it. E-N-O-C-H W-E-D-D-E-R-B-O-R-N, and underneath it the letters V-M-L-X-S-D-V-W-W-V-I-Y-L-I-M, which were the letters found between those last three asterisks. Fortunately, it was a long name, you see, embracing nine different letters. If the letters of the cipher were consistent, and if the letters in my relation's name corresponded in every case with those that represented in the puzzle, then I had no less than eighteen letters to work with. I made the experiment, with some eagerness, you may be sure, and the result, though not as striking as you may have expected and as I expected, nevertheless convinced me my supposition must be correct. He produced another paper showing the cryptograph in its second stage of disentanglement. The name comes out all right now, said Mr. Hargan, but you don't seem to have done much for the rest of the thing. Looks worse than ever, if possible. Yes, I was disappointed, and yet more than two-thirds of the letters are in their right places now. I can see what there was about the affair to convince you of that. Look at the second line. There, towards the end, you will find the word vehicle. This remarkable fact confirmed my belief in my original discovery. Such a peculiar collection of letters as form the word vehicle could hardly, I fancied, have happened by chance. Here and there, too, if you examine the puzzle at this stage, you will see well-marked fragments of words and several words of one syllable. Where, clearly begins the fourth line, whole, occurs in the seventh and again in the ninth. A phrase in the last line but one told me the rest of the secret. It looks pretty much like the rest. I refer to the eighteen letters between the two asterisks on that line. I had already suspected that these asterisks were merely full stops. I, therefore, took the letters, 
D-E-Z-D-M-E-N-Q-E-L-L-N-O-Q-Z-L-E-S and tried to spell them into words. In this passage, I had already got, as I believed, all the right letters, with the exception of Z and Q. Both occurred twice, and after an experiment or two, I found one which told the other, and by telling the other confirmed itself. Substitute A for Z, and we get dead men quell no qualis. You will see yourself what Q must stand for. Of course, exclaimed Mr. Hargan, catching a little of the detective spirit. Q stands for T. Dead men tell no tales. There it is, plain as the nose on my face. Exactly. So my next step was to substitute these letters, A and T, for Z and Q. At the same time, of course, I was prepared to put Z in place of A and Q instead of T, but here a great difficulty met me. The letter A does not once occur in the cryptogram, so I had not to trouble any more with the Z, but the letter T does occur five times, and I found that by placing Q instead of it I did not add to the sense of the clearness in one of these five cases. In the next stage of the puzzle, therefore, while making A stand for Z and T for Q, I have not made Q stand for T, but left the five original T's in their places, marking them, however, in italics. Now what I think you will find daylight everywhere. The mysterious enigma of the doubloons certainly lost much of the puzzling nature in its third guise. Now it ran thus. On a day or a quest, I rose bet times called me and troll to hasten them flesh to vehicle and went abroad to the continues my estate where three tain stones and in a train a land at a distance eighty six yard surum the most northern dash himpelarbed m me comhuance I set my slave to dit. Full stop. He madi hole o of the two durintin decti hand therein I laid me may wealth. Then the back pulled the hole and scattered dara where earth remained. Dead men tell no tales. I returned with myself alone, Enoch Wedderborn. Now I think we see what we're coming to, said Mr. Harkin, wiping his spectacles and screwing up his eyes. The mystery clears up fast. What did you do next? My next step was occupied with the T's of the original manuscript, those I have here marked in italics. The fact that these were not Q's, as they should have been, bothered me a good deal, and led to a discovery that settled what little difficulty remained. In the first case, the letters... A-N-E-T-R-O-L-A-D looked remarkable, but the third T in the letters triantal told me, as they doubtless tell you the truth, triantal must be triangle, for the word three occurs just before. Make the italicized T's into G's, then, and we get the words negro, giant, triangle, dig, and good. Then it was that in looking carefully at the results now reached and trying to find upon what system if any the old man had constructed his puzzle that i suddenly came upon the absurd truth 
I found that Z stood for A, Y stood for B, and X stood for C. This transparent transposition obtained throughout. Look here. Tom Wedderborn wrote the alphabet, and beneath it a reverse of all the letters. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. Z, Y, X, W, V, N, T, S, R, Q, P, O, N, M, L, K, J, I, H, G, F, E, D, C, B, A. There you are in a nutshell. It holds in every case excepting J and Q. By a slip of his pen, the writer of the enigma wrote Q for T instead of G for T. Doubtless, in his original plan, as above, he had made the letter G look like Q, and so put it down wrongly from the beginning to end. But when he wanted G, he looked for it at the top line and found that T stood for it clearly enough. The remarkable fact is that he did not use the letter J once. If he had done so, he must have instantly discovered his mistake. Wonderful, to be sure. And that clears it all up? Completely. Use the above childishly simple code, where it is still necessary to do so, and you will find the baldest, most concise statement possible. Here is the full solution. It requires no genius, after all, to come at it. I have only added a comma here and there. He gave Mr. Hargan a final paper from his bag. The enigma appeared clear enough now. On a day past, I rose betimes, called me a negro lad, fastened mules to a vehicle, and went abroad to the confines of my estate, where three giant stones stand in a triangle, and at a distance of eighty-six yards from the most northern, he marked M upon his face, I set my slave to dig. He made a hole of four good feet in depth, and therein I laid my wealth. Then the black filled the hole and scattered afar what earth remained. Dead men tell no tales. I returned with my mules alone. Enoch Wedderborn The wicked old chap shot this wretched slave, evidently, probably left him where he fell, and then went home having made his secret absolutely secure. I have told you such of his subsequent history as I know myself. The question now is, are there any means of knowing what constituted the confines of his estate? If they are now built over, of course the quest is doomed. If they were built over, the money would probably have turned up, said Mr. Hagen. No, the confines of the estate are pretty much as they were when my grandfather became possessed of it. As to the giant stones, there are enough of them to make her search rather hopeless, I should fear. Still five thousand doubloons might be worth a little trouble. I want no help. In fact, the quieter the thing is kept, the better. That I may have your permission to preserve this enigma to the end is all I ask. Then, forgive me for being so businesslike, but what share shall you claim, sir?' Mr. Hargan was a rich man, with one daughter only, and she being already engaged to an affluent Barbados merchant, the elderly Dane had few cares. Moreover, Tom Wedderborn took his fancy. The lad was bright, resolute, clever, and modest before his betters. "'As to that, my lad, as I have told you, we shall not quarrel. I have only one chick, and she is provided for.' 
I'll be business-like too and write a statement which will place you quite safe, even though the doubloons, when they do turn up, make me feel greedy. Tom thanked his new friend, and there were tears in the young fellow's eyes as he did so. He was already building castles in the air. It struck him that in addition to the money, there might be among the precious jewels also alleged to be hidden, some of a nature to please Mr. Hargan's daughter. End of section 25